Hello and welcome to another edition of Pacific Post-Ups. It's too old, Nick. Can you stand the tension for much longer? Well, there's plenty of tension down here in Melbourne after we've gone into another bloody snap lockdown, so I didn't need any more tension in my life, but tension is being provided by what's happening in the NBA Finals. Uh, Milwaukee, yes, have indeed squared things up against our uh, Pacific Division Phoenix Suns, and the series has got very interesting uh, very quickly. Uh, in saying that, you know, uh, both teams have held serve at home. It's, it hasn't been anything too crazy, but I do think that uh, Phoenix supporters will be left ruining the opportunities that presented themselves in that last game. Yeah, it was a, I mean, I guess it's probably a, a great way to start by uh, by taking a dip here um, and, uh, and jumping into game four, uh, which was, look, to be honest with you, I, I think the one that got away from Phoenix, regardless of what happens the remainder of the series, if, uh, if Milwaukee do go on to win here, You'd have to think that Game Four would be the uh, the one that Phoenix fans would look back on and go, "We we could have taken that. We could have gone three um, one." I still probably have the Suns as favourites at this point, but that Game Four was crucial. Um, and it was there was look there was a comedy of errors uh, there from Phoenix's perspective. I mean, Devin Booker was in foul trouble. Then he he should have fouled out, but he didn't. Um, you know, you have Giannis making one of the greatest defensive plays in, a, in an NBA final series, um, right up there with couple of LeBron blocks, top of mind. Um, and, yeah, it was a, look, it was a great game. Um, there are a lot of suns that, that came up a bit short. Um, but it, it probably is a good little teaser for what might be there to come for the rest of the series. Uh, I guess probably a good way to start, Nick, is uh, coming out of game four, who do you like now for the rest of the series? Well, I was saying this to you in the, in the chat before we started recording, and uh, I kind of feel like, the Bucks are one good road game from Chris Middleton uh, away from really taking momentum in this series. I think that his performance, particularly in that last game, uh, was terrific. Uh, in that game four, uh, really took over down the stretch, had a playoff career high, 40 points. And uh, yeah, sort of in, in that last quarter, in the last few minutes, really was the guy uh, for uh, Milwaukee in a relatively quiet night for Giannis compared to the the masterful performances that he's had already in this series. So I'm not sure if the momentum is totally swinging Milwaukee's way enough for me to pick them in the series. Um, but potentially, I think I picked, uh, going back to our, our preview, which was last week, there's been a lot happened in, 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 uh, in a week. Um, but I, I still think that I'm tipping Phoenix. I think it's going to be a bit closer than I maybe uh, would have expected. I still think that it probably will go to seven games um, at this stage, given how both teams have gone. But yeah, as I said, if, if Middleton's able to get one of those performances going, you know, at Phoenix, and I think that the series really dramatically shifts because he's shown that he that, that sort of, I think someone posted a graphic, might have been from uh, the No Dunks uh, guys um, on The Athletic, Shout out to them. And they had like the whole sort of carousel of Chris Middleton where it, you know, starts off at, you know, he has a bit of a, a bad game and then it's sort of the media start getting sort of stuck into him and he's becoming overrated and he has a really good game and it's back to being underrated and it just goes around and around again. And I, I do think that his, his form is crucial uh, if Milwaukee are going to pull this series out. But I, I think we're seeing enough from Phoenix that particularly in that last game, they had that really up until late. So I still think the series is theirs to take. It, it probably poses an interesting question. Um, does Devin Booker have to be better than Chris Middleton for the Phoenix Suns to win the remainder of the series? I don't think he needs to be better than Chris Middleton, but I do think that Jay Crowder, Mikhail Bridges, uh, Chris Paul it needs to be better. We'll get into that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um campaign these sort of guys they need to be better than the supporting cast because we sort of know what we're going to get from Giannis and I think we for the most part know we're going to we're going to get from Booker he had a, a bad game three of bounced back really strongly with a 42 point night and and with that 11 fouls as well so um he had a good night but it was it is it, it, it's a, it's frustrating when you know as a fan you can be a fan of a team and you can kind of like quote unquote waste a really good performance from one of your star players. And it kind of felt a little bit like that for Phoenix. So 
if he's if books are able to keep you know sort of pouring in these thirty point games, they can't do with you know some poor shooting nights. They can deal with him maybe having a a low thirty one thirty two point night if Paul's playing well. If they're getting a bit out of eight and on the offensive end, um, not just the glass. I think that it's not as a big of a deal as Middleton going off, but. Yeah, they, they, they can't afford for Booker to have a, a game three performance again um, in these last few games of the series. Yeah, uh, I think the, the point you started with there um, is that the the Suns guys and the aggregate, the support guys, the role players really do need to be better than the Bucks guys. And, and when you look at the rosters as a whole, it's kind of surprising that they're not streets ahead. Um, I mean, okay, don't get me wrong. Uh, uh, Brooke Lopez, you could make a case that he's a... If you look at look, each each team's got three all-star-ish caliber players. Um, CP3, Book, and Aiton for the Suns, and um, Holiday, Middleton, and Giannis for the Bucks. Obviously, varying levels of, of all-star or close to all-star there. Um, but Brook Lopez, look, you make a strong case he could be the, the best fourth player. And I'd prefer Mikael Bridges because of the versatility. But on any given night, Brook Lopez could go give you. A, you know, 18 and 12 and, and all of a sudden look like, look like the best fourth guy in the series. But after that, there's a steep drop-off. I mean, PJ Tucker at this point of his career is is more just a defensive guy that has is, is hanging on to an offensive reputation from years gone by in Houston. Um, Pat Connaughton, it, I mean, he's probably a little bit better than, than some of the discourse around him has been over the last 12 months. But it, I mean, it, I'd take Jay Crowder over Pat Connaughton. I'd, I'd take Cam Johnson over Pat Connaughton. So... I definitely take Mikael Bridges over Pat Connaughton. So I just think in the aggregate that it's disappointing to a certain extent from Phoenix that their their depth hasn't shone through more. Um, Campaigns struggled in this series, uh, which we kind of suspected he might. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know whether this is just a small sample size. Those role players will go back to Phoenix um, where they've shot the ball well the whole postseason. They could go up 3-2 and things are going to be looking rosy. But I'd be a little disappointed if I was Monty Williams in the guys that are surrounding his uh, his three all-star caliber players. Yeah, only 13 points between Aiton and Bridges uh, in that game four compared to where Bridges had, you know, 27 points um, himself in game two. So it does happen. You know, that's the it's a, it's a historical fact that, you know, I guess like, role players, you know, struggle a little bit more on the road, but they are going to need to get a bit more out of these guys, you know, and there's been some things that have continued to crop up for, for the Suns, really a couple of games in a row now. They've got really bullied in the paint uh, and then on the offensive glass as well, when Milwaukee in, in game four had eight um, in, the, in the last quarter alone. So got killed in second chance points, was like 19 to seven in favor of the Bucks, and then 17 turnovers for Phoenix. I mean, it, it is... That's what I talk about, sort of wasting that good game from Booker, because that is all on Phoenix. And some of those turnovers were coming from a very uncharacteristic source of uh, turning the basketball over. Yeah, um, Chris Paul had a bad game. Let, let's just put it out there. Um, I, having kind of gone back through and watched some of the film again, I actually think as much as we've all kind of mocked Drew Holiday a little bit for his level of play in this series. I think he's wearing Chris Paul down. Um, and it's not just, it's not obviously just Drew Holiday. It's its the fact that Chris Paul's now in his, his fourth consecutive playoff series, something that he's never done before in his career. He's at an advanced age, you know, and he can eat as much beyond meat mints as he, as he wants. It's not going to not gonna help him kind of get through seven, seven games here. But Look, I'd be disappointed in Drew Holiday in this series, but I can give him credit for something. He's wearing Chris Paul down, and, and that itself might have pretty much bought them a game uh, in that game four there. So what will be interesting – actually, there was a couple of plays while we're on this topic where I saw Chris Paul kind of kick the ball over to campaign in, in a couple of select minutes where they were both on the floor together and almost looked to him as if to say, you know, you can do it for a player. And I thought that was telling because I, I think Chris Paul is is needing some desperate rest um, and we might need a couple of more big games from Booker or Aiton to carry him through the remainder of this series. Yeah, it was... It, it, I'm not sure if... Labouring is probably a strong word, but he's looking a bit more sapped, I would say. Uh, as you said, that you know we should expect that a little bit of a guy who's not only playing uh, you know at a pretty ripe old age, but the fact that he's also had his own injury problems during the series. Now, we can't... 
but but by that same token as well, you know, we've we've said the same comments about other players, um, you know, through the playoffs, saying if they're out on the court, they're playing. We can't, you know, sort of give them any, you know, room for for excuses. Um, you know, if if, if Chris is playing, then he's then we need to to judge him or what he's got out there. And that, that turnover he slipped over was just I, I I couldn't believe that him him as a player. That it's kind of one of those turnovers you that you just don't expect certain players to make, and that was one of them. And yeah, then the ball went back down the other end. They scored, and it's just yeah. I, I thought that was very telling. Not you know, it's a, again, is that you know someone who's physically exhausted? Is that a mental lapse? Which you know everyone's prone to, regardless of whether you know a you know a first ballot Hall of Famer or someone who's potentially going to join uh, Joe Harris playing in China. It doesn't matter. So um, it it is tricky. Um, but by the same token, everyone sort of has been very quick to jump on Chris Paul and saying how bad of a player he is and all this sort of stuff. It's one game. Um, you know, good players have bad games. Great players have bad games as well. So I expect him to to come out um, back home in Phoenix and have a really um, crucial game for the Suns. And they're really going to need it. And I think that this does shape as sort of like a, almost like a legacy defining game for Chris Paul to a degree. Yeah, it's a... Uh... Look, I mean, this we've discussed this before on this pod. That this is really going to be his best chance at a title. Um, we don't know what the future holds, but we've discussed at length how difficult the West is going to be next year. Um, I mean, next year getting out of the first round in the West is, is going to be an absolute slog fight, let alone getting back to this point here. And if you do get back to this point here this time next year, you're probably staring down the, the three-headed monster in Brooklyn. So it's really not going to get any easier. Um, and... and Look, here's the thing for Chris Paul. Part of me thinks that he doesn't need to try to do too much here. Um, Booker, I mean, you watched him. He was contested jumper after contested jumper, and they were going down. And he's he's that guy at this point. He is ready to go. I, I just think that Chris Paul just needs to – we need just a, a classic Chris Paul game and not in the, like, 40 points against Denver sense, just in the set up the offense, keep you know take care of the ball, Make his threes, get to his pull up just enough off of the pick and roll to uh to keep the defense honest, and I think that's probably going to be more than enough at home with those rowdy Phoenix fans with the role players playing better again. Um, something tells me a big DeAndre Ayton game is brewing in the next mm. game or two as well. Um, so I think Chris Paul doesn't need to overcomplicate it here. Just just give us a good Chris Paul game because I do think at the heart of it, the Suns are probably the slightly better team. So there's no need to try to reinvent the wheel. Hundred percent. You talk about Aiton. It's been sort of really interesting to sort of see the dialogue around him sort of shift a little bit in the last couple of games. I think that particularly as Giannis has started to get going a little bit more and putting him under pressure. Um, you know, the fact is that they don't have Darius Arch out there, and they're playing. They give. They were giving Frank Kaminsky minutes in the finals, which is just like it's not something I expected to talk about. <laughs> um, and we we talked about at the deadline how I thought that Phoenix needed uh, another big man um, and how after that I was like you know if they're going to be okay if they're healthy and if they're okay going with some Saric minutes that's okay but the drop off from him to Kaminsky is quite massive particularly on the defensive end and I wouldn't say Saric is a you know incredible defender by any stretch so I think that you know they are sort of regretting maybe a little bit just not having another body out there to to alleviate some pressure you know, for Aiton you know well, Aiton was on the bench in in game three, because he had to play, it was like a season low, uh, sorry, playoff low minutes um, for him. You know, the Bucks ended up outscoring the Suns by 14 points. And we're seeing all these, you know, plus categories in like rebounds, particularly on the offensive glass. Um, Aiton drew uh, a lot of fouls in that game three, where he's really getting attacked and, you know, getting bulldozed. And that sort of led to this conversation around sort of how Garnas gets fouled as well, particularly when we go from watching a finals game to a um, Olympic warm-up game where the whistle is uh, put away um, quite a, a bit more. So it has been interesting to see how Aiton's going to handle things. He does need a big game and Phoenix need him to have a big game, but you know, there's only so much you can do to hold up Giannis, but there has been a couple of foul calls. I think that I don't know, probably it probably been a little bit tight and a little bit unfair on Aiton, but yeah, he, he needs a big game. Yeah, there are two foul calls that come to mind. I think the clip's been going around on Twitter. I'm not sure if you've seen it as well. I think Giannis's first two foul calls in the last game, both of which were, were on Aiton, um, and they were they were they were marginal at best. 
I'd prefer to see that not called uh, in the finals, let alone in the regular season. Um, and I also think that while Aiton might not be, you know, might not quite be an all NBA first team big at this point, I think he's good enough to not get those tic tac calls against him. He, yeah. he, I know that referees should be refereeing every player the same, you know, whatever, but at the end of the day, in the NBA, they don't. I think surely to some level, the refs understand that, that tic tac fouls on Aiton aren't actually good for the game. Um, you know, it's good for him to be in the game in the third and fourth quarter. Um, although Phoenix fans probably can't complain too much about certain officiating of certain fouls. Um, but it's it's just, it's difficult. Although he will, I think, get the benefit of the whistle um, when they get back to Phoenix, which is important. Uh, I guess an interesting one for me when we talk about the big rotation, look, you made a, you did make a spot on point at the deadline. They were probably short a big um, this might not have been Saric's series necessarily either, uh, even if he was out there. Well, perhaps on the offensive end, but probably not the defensive end. Um, how bad does Jalen Smith have to look in training for him to not get any sort of run? Like, he's a big body. He's not strong, um, but he, he's got some verticality. He's got bloody long arms. Um, he offers something on the offensive end. He's got a little bit of athleticism. He's meant to be able to shoot the three. We've seen such little of him. I don't know. I mean... You know, how bad can he really be looking at, at training for him to not get any juice at this point? Yeah, I, I'm kind of surprised that he didn't get more minutes sort of towards the back end, of, even just the whole season. I think that just filtering him through to get little bits and pieces of minutes, I think, would have been sort of really handy. It was almost like when, um, <laughs> like last year when PJ Dozier rocked up in the um, in the in the conference what, what conference semifinals and someone who hadn't really featured too much in the playoff rotation and, and a, a guy who you know is probably most casual fans and to be honest myself I'm not exactly a you know a Denver uh, Nuggets enthusiast so I haven't hadn't seen a lot of PJ Dozier but him rocking up in the finals ended up being a bit of an impact I just I just don't understand why he couldn't have got you know a couple of minutes here and there outside of junk time. Uh, I know it's a, it's a very tricky thing to play a young big, uh, a young player in the finals, um, let alone a big guy. But again, just to suck up some fouls a little bit, I would think at this point, surely he can maybe offer something a little bit more defensively than Frank Kaminsky. That's that's all I'm going to say. I, I just think, I mean, him standing there with his hands up has got to be better than what Frank the Tank does at this point. <laughs> um, I mean, they call him sticks. You know, they're, they're not they're not they're not small. They're not short arms. They might be a he might need a bit of extra work in the gym, but um, he's got some verticality. Uh, but look, I, I don't think we're going to see that, to be honest with you, for the rest of the series. I think Phoenix have kind of narrowed their rotation here, and this rotation is either going to get them to a championship or it's not. Um, I, I guess I'm, I'm curious, and I actually, I actually posed this question to uh, to a certain extent last night um, over Twitter, is who is the finals MVP so far? I think it's Giannis. Uh, he's been as as much as we are a Pacific Division podcast, and I don't really want to be giving too much love to the other side of the equation. He's he's been awesome. Uh, you know, considering the last time that we had a podcast, we were talking about what kind of Giannis are we going to see in the finals, and how is he going to look after that injury? Well, he's looked pretty fucking good. Uh, you know, he's averaging what almost thirty three points per game, fourteen boards, five and a half assists almost a couple of steals and almost one and a half blocks per game in the finals. He's just risen to the occasion. He's had some barn burner of a game. Even like last game, he wasn't superb, but he did what he needed to do and had one of you know the best defensive plays in NBA finals history. And yeah, he, he's, he's really taken to this stage. I think, I'm not sure how many questions there were about sort of what he could do. I mean, I know last year sort of, I know that like in the MVP conversation this year, a lot of it was people not voting for him based on his postseason performances of the past. And people were still waiting for what he could do um, this late in the season. I think those questions need to be well and truly put to bed because he is that good and he's showing it on this stage. And at the moment, I think that, I mean, I'm not exactly sure if Milwaukee win the finals from here that I'm not certain about yet, but I'm trying to think. I, I, I probably should have looked this up before, but I'd be interested to see when's the last time a player from a losing team won the finals. Because if, if Phoenix win, I do think it's Booker just. But 
him, and then I don't think he's had a superb NBA Finals. I think he's been pretty good, but not not as good as Giannis. It almost like comes back to when LeBron was going off against the Warriors, and there was arguments that he should have won Finals MVP. So for you, Lou, who's uh, leading the race at the moment, and particularly who would win it if Phoenix wins? So firstly, I do know the answer to your question because it was Jerry West against my Boston Celtics in, in 1969. So something, something that, uh, you know, as a Celtics fan, we, we rue every single thing that we've had to give to the Lakers. And even though we won that championship, we didn't like the fact we had to give him the finals MVP. But poor, <laughs> poor Jerry didn't have much luck throughout his playing career. So I think he can have that one. Um, it, it's tough because I, I think Phoenix are going to win the series. I don't know why. I just do. I had them at the start, and I don't want to divert away from that because despite Milwaukee winning the last two games, there's been not enough shown to me to make me think otherwise, although there are points where you're watching some of those Middleton, Giannis pick and rolls where you're like, hell would anyone defend this? Um, but look, it, it's hard to tell. Assuming that game three from Book was just – an outlier. I think it's probably book that's the favorite right now. Um, purely because I think Phoenix are the favorite right now. But if you're talking to me who the best player in the series is so far, I mean, you're right. It's unquestionably Giannis. Um, and don't get me wrong without Chris Middleton being Chris Middleton, particularly over these last couple of games, it wouldn't have allowed Giannis to be Giannis as much. We saw in the first couple of games, what Giannis being just amazing with nothing else going on around him looks like, and it looks like Phoenix winning. So, you know, it's not to understate Middleton's importance, but I also know Chris Middleton, and you mentioned that funny graphic by what I think was the No Dunks guys, was that there's going to be a game in the next game or two where Chris Middleton's just going to have an absolute stinker and the discourse is going to shift too far back the other way. And it happens over and over again with him where it's like, he is a fantastic player. He isn't, in the MVP conversation, he never will be. But respecting what him is, which is in a seven-game series, he'll probably give you three really good games and and one pretty good game, and three games where you where you question whether he's really a number two to Giannis, and that, that's just what it is. But I, I think it can't be Middleton, so and it's definitely not Holiday. So for me, it's got to be probably Book or Giannis, um, and that really depends on on who you think is going to win the finals. Because I can tell you, they're not even if it goes seven, it's just. It's not – the NBA seems to have just pretty much drawn the line, and I think LeBron set the standard. You cannot win it anymore on a losing team. Yep. Unfortunately, yeah. Even if Giannis does continue to sort of go nuclear for the rest of the series and, and Phoenix end up winning, it's will probably be a, a Suns player. Yeah, I do think Book's leading that race. And, yeah, particularly if he has two, uh, you know, massive games to finish this thing off, then that game three performance is a, is a distant memory um, while he's lifting up two trophies. So uh, going on that, do you think the series goes six or it goes seven? What do you think? Look, I'm leaning seven because as much as I like the Suns, I think the Bucks have, the Bucks have showed me enough to make me think um, this could go seven and the Bucks could win it. Like it, it would not shock me if the Bucks won this series. Um that being said, this game could have so easily gone Phoenix's way, and this conversation me and you would be having would be totally different. We'd basically be talk- be slowly rolling out the parade for Phoenix yep. to to bring this home sooner rather than later. So I am mindful of that as well. Um, but I-, I think it will go seven. I think Giannis just has too much heart, and I also think never rule out that if Phoenix win this next one, any Milwaukee will get any and every 50-50 calls in, in-, in game six in Milwaukee. Um and I would be saying the same if it was the other way, and that was Phoenix in that situation as well. So my gut feel says it goes seven, um, and and Booker and CP do it on their home floor there in Arizona. Um, but nothing would shock me. I guess what's your kind of feel from this point out, and and what's your prediction at, at this stage? Well, yeah, but before the series, my pick was Phoenix in seven, and I'm sticking with that. I do think that for the reasons that you just mentioned, I think that yeah, just. It's just too close for it to go six, I think. Um, I think the Bucks are showing enough life that it will go seven. But I do think that, as you said, a very raucous uh, Phoenix crowd you know, there, the, you know, the Valley is going to rally. And I do think that they'll sort of help them get over the line. But it it, it does, you know, still uh, position as a really fascinating series, regardless of what casual NBA fans think, that this, um, this series has been awesome so far. And I do think that it will have a, a pretty interesting conclusion. 
I, I, absolutely. I, I, you know, this series could, is much better than I think what would have been the case as far as a viewing perspective than let's say if we got the Hawks or uh, if Brooklyn were healthy. Uh, I think either one of the, you know, if it was, if it was Hawks Suns, it would have been five or six and I reckon it would have been a wrap. Mm. And if it was, and if you had Brooklyn healthy, I reckon it would have been five or six the other way. So like I'd much prefer to see a contested seven game series um, or even a really good six game series and, and enjoy that than worry about the markets that are in it or, or the players that are, that are no longer there. Um, I think that's far more important. I guess before we move on, cause I know we've got a couple of topics outside of the scope of the finals. Um, and putting our, our Pacific Division hats on here. If you're Monty Williams, is there anything you're changing? Would you like to see less or, or more minutes for any specific rotational players or any, any scheme change up, change ups? Or do you just trust the process here and think you get it done at home? Yeah, I, I don't think you change up too much. I mean, we sort of look at what happened in that last game, the fact that, you know, Phoenix shot 51% from the field and it was really just careless turnovers in the end. And, they probably did the damage. I think mean, the offensive rebounding numbers are probably one of the points of concern. Um, it's just really being able to keep Aiton out there uh, for longer and let him have an impact on really on both ends. I think um, the points in the paint, yeah, it's a little bit tricky. I think the, the things that, but in saying that, they just lost that game like so, by such a slim margin at the end of the game, really. So I don't think that. It's panic stations and you need to change up too much. I think you need to trust in what you've been doing so well right throughout the season and right throughout the playoffs and in the finals. So if you clean up those turnovers, you're not going to have a five-turnover game from Chris Paul again this series, you would think. If you do, that is wild. Um, but I do think they clean things up enough, take care of the ball, and they'll, they'll pull this out. I would love to see, and this would elevate him from like high-level all-star potential uh, kind of guy to to one of the best players in the game conversation. I think I'd love to see another one of those games, one of those first quarters from Book, like the one he pulled against the Lakers in the closeout game, where he just went at Anthony Davis, albeit Anthony Davis was injured, but he basically he just went at him and it was like six threes or something in the first quarter. It was ridiculous, and he basically was just like, you know, good night, bye bye. And I'd like to see. Even though he can't win the game in game, win the series in game five, I would love to see him just come out on his home floor and put this one away. That would really elevate his legacy, in my opinion. Um, you know, I, I, I honestly, I've had almost enough now of listening to every time Devin Booker makes a mid range jumper, Mark Jackson has to remind us that Kobe Bryant told him to be legendary. Like, I love the story. It's getting, it's getting milked too much now, but. That being said, like if he wants to elevate himself into a into a guy that and look, he's not Kobe Bryant, but if he wants to be talked about like a guy that could have a career like a like a Dwayne Wade or someone like that, um, you know, in that Kobe mold, you know, what some of those great shooting guards we've had, then he could really uh you said this one's defining for Chris Paul's legacy, and Booker could certainly paint a picture about himself moving forward by closing the series out. Um so in the Pacific Division, we had some interesting injury news. Uh, and yet also not surprising industry news. Um, Kawhi Leonard, uh, partially torn ACL, which from my understanding is almost as bad as a fully torn ACL from a, a recovery perspective. Uh, I think the cited injuries of a similar note were Spencer Dinwiddie, um, and there was one other that's not coming to mind, uh, top of frame, but... Um, where do you kind of let see that for Kawhi and also obviously for the Clippers? Yeah, obviously it's uh, a big blow for them uh, in, in a very interesting time as well. This would be a, a tough injury to have for a team regardless um, of sort of w- what um, was happening with that player. But, you know, the player in question is one of the uh, marquee names on the free agency market this season. So it it does raise some interesting questions. Obviously it's it, it borderline rules Kawhi out for the entirety of the regular season, you would say, um, and leaves the Clippers with a lot of questions. I mean, obviously, we talked about how Kawhi's got that player option. We expect him to decline it. Um, I'd be very surprised if he like opted in, um, you know, regardless of what's now happened with his with his injury timeline. Um, but I, I get, yeah, I don't know. It, do the Clippers then go well? Are we going to re-sign him long-term? Does that is that something Kawhi wants to do? Does he want to sign a long-term deal to get some financial security? Sort of do what KD did after his um, Achilles injury 
and sort of sit out that first year and then sort of come back. He's still got three years on the contract or are they get, is he going to go short term, back himself in to get an even bigger deal um, so he can get that massive five-year contract? You know, it's worth about 250 mil. That's probably the interesting part, what Kawhi wants to do rather than almost the Clippers want to do because I think that, yeah, I'd be if I was him, I'd probably be backing myself in for that for for a, a more long term deal now, rather than go short term and then see what happens. I mean, we've obviously seen what uh, you know Katie did coming back from his Achilles. It's not the same injury, but Kawhi's a guy who has had a couple of major injuries through his career. Um, I'm not exactly sure if betting on himself at the moment, going short term, then a big long term deal is the right move. There was an interesting um, interesting concept that was put forward. Uh, I think um, it was I think Kevin Arnovitz, uh, ESPN, um, was talking about how perhaps he could opt in and then extend. Uh, the reason the Clippers can't give him the full five-year deal at the moment is because he's only been there for two years, which means yep. that early bird rights and not bird rights, not full bird rights. Sorry to bore those that aren't interested in the cap situation, but... Um, and so if he opts in and extends, he can essentially get uh, get the five years. Um, and I think that's what Kawhi will do. I, it's funny because uh, the, the phrase you always hear about Kawhi is anyone that tells you that they have any intel on Kawhi, don't listen to it because no one has any intel on Kawhi. And, I mean, we saw that with the last free agency. You know, there was, oh, no, it's, got, it's, it's the Raptors. He's flying up there to take a meeting. No, it's the Lakers. You know, the Clippers are always kind of there. Um, I still remember like having no idea when that when that Woj notification finally came yeah. through. But um, it, it it's the kind of thing where I do think Kawhi is at a point now in his career where he's he used to prioritize flexibility, um, and obviously he ended up getting where he wanted to, which is in LA, close to San Diego. I, I do think this time round we're going to see him make a long term commitment um, to the Clippers. He, he obviously has won a couple of championships. Um, and I don't think he's quite on the LeBron level of, of how much he cares about his legacy. So w- whether he realizes that, yeah, the Clippers might not be the top tier of contenders at the fifth year of that deal, he, he probably would know that. But I think at this point, he's had a couple of injuries, and I suspect that he'll probably go for a, the longest-term deal he can sign with the Clippers, stay in L.A., and full well know that if he wants to ask out, the way the NBA is these days, he'll be able to ask out. Um so I, I think that's the way he's going to go, uh, but I'm very curious with him. And, and there's no point even even assuming anything just at this point with the way Kawhi operates. Yeah, I, I do think I agree that he will prioritize uh, security um, at, at this stage of his career, as he said. You know, sort of coming off a couple a couple of injuries, he's got a couple of championships under his belt. I think he's I think he's reasonably settled now um, as a Clipper. You know, sort of discussions with sort of about sort of, you know, if any team was going to have a crack at him, I was I was a bit unsure about what he would be doing, judging on sort of how the Clippers postseason started. But I think we've seen enough, uh, you know, from the other team in LA that, you know, there is some grit and fight in this squad. And I think that was the thing that we we're looking for um, in this playoffs series. And then obviously Kawhi going down really took away their ability to, um, to, to progress how they wanted to. Um, but... Yeah, I, I do think that it, probably the interesting part now is what the Clippers do sort of after, uh, assuming Kawhi does uh, re-sign uh, long-term um, on a new deal or if he you know, gets that extension, whatever the, the case may be. is that The reality is is that they don't have a lot of assets to, to get creative with to keep things afloat while Kawhi is not there. So... You know, they've got decisions to make whether they're bringing back Nick Batum and Reggie Jackson, two players who will get a number of offers in other places. Um, they don't have a lot of draft capital to to get uh, flexible with because obviously they, they mortgage the future a little bit when they traded for Paul George. Uh, and then the contracts that they do have tradable aren't the most desirable things in the world. So it's not like they can attach those deals to some draft picks to entice a team to get into things like, you know, we talk about, you know, Pat Bev, uh, a Luke Kennard contract or a, a Markeith Morris um, as well. Those are the, the three sort of deals you can may- maybe get creative with financially, but I, I don't really see them making a big move to try to keep things 
I don't know, I guess uh, kept their head, heads above water during the regular season. Lou, do you think they do anything with those contracts to try to make a deal? Or do you think they stand pat, trust PG to, to keep things going while Kawhi uh, tries to get back? It's interesting, a pivot point. You mentioned Batum and Jackson as, as kind of key to this because if you can get Batum and Jackson back, uh, there's enough going on there that you can trust PG and the gang to at least get you into the playoffs and hopefully not like the seventh or eighth seed. Um but if if you're going to lose, my gut feel says Batum stays just quietly. By the way, um, all the all the talk was he considered retirement um, after getting bought out by Charlotte because you know he wasn't enjoying basketball anymore. And I think he might be mindful of going and taking more money to uh, to go to a different location again. If he's happy in LA, he stays. Jackson's the one I'm not sure about, but uh, and I could be wrong on Batum. Just just a feel on the personality there, but the. The difficult thing is if they can no longer keep uh, Jackson or Batum, then I think they need to kind of work things around. There is a ton of smoke about Lonzo Ball and the Clippers at the moment. Yeah. But there's a ton of smoke about Lonzo Ball and a lot of teams. I think the, the thing that kind of like the discourse around Lonzo Ball, and I've been pro Lonzo to the Clippers, as have you, um, for a while now. But the thing is, like, I hear a lot of fan bases talking about him and thinking this guy's just going to come in and it's like, Okay, it's like Jason Kidd with a jump shot. And it's like, okay, yeah, he's a good open court passer. And when he gets in positions to make good reads, he has fantastic vision. And, yes, he's become a good catch-and-shoot guy. But I, I do think that – the other one I saw is I think people kind of pick, think like they picture like peak Rondo with a jump shot. It's just not he, – he, his passing abilities there, it's just he's not actually – he can't get himself into positions to use a lot when he's not in transition. So you see these full-court lobs design and stuff, and it – it's just it's not going to be Lonzo running a whole bunch of half court pick and rolls and setting up a whole bunch of guys magnificently over and over again. Like he's not that kind of guy. Doesn't mean he wouldn't be fantastic for the Clippers though. Um, in that scenario, I think it'd probably Luke Kennard's probably their best asset. I could see Luke Kennard on the Pelicans working. Um, Pelicans have got a stack of issues. I don't even know how the trade mechanics for that would work. Um, but if if they can't get a another kind of Lonzo Ball tier player in there then I would hesitate, hesitate against just making a move for the sake of making a move. Um, the only other asset they've got that I think could be potentially of interest to some teams is, is I mean, look, I'd, if I was a team, I wouldn't mind the look of our, our guy Zubac. Uh, but you've got to have faith that Serge Barker, um, who has a player option, um, or whoever it is you bring in at centre can cover those minutes. And the other thing about Zubac is as much as he's a good player on a good contract, I don't know how many teams out there are pining to give up a substantial wing or, or perimeter player for Zubac. So it, it, at the end of the day, it's probably a stand-pack kind of situation for me. But Alonzo ball trade uh, is quite interesting as well. Yeah, the Alonzo fit, I think, um, is definitely more appealing, appealing when Kawhi is back on the court rather than if it's just Lonzo and PG and a bunch of guys. But the problem is if they do like a sign and trade for Lonzo, you know, they are going to give up, have to give up a couple of players where they would have to give up a Luke Kennard. They'd probably have, they'd probably give up Pat Bev to try to make the money work. Uh, you know, if you maybe flicking Terrence Mann in there to entice the Pelicans into another young asset who they can put around Zion and Ingram if he's still there as well. So it does get interesting. Um, I think there's some teams in better positions to get, to get Lonzo and to whether that's in it, um, depending on how that looks, I'm just not sure how the Clippers do that and really sort of entice the Pelicans that way, but we'll see. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not, their lack of sort of capital, both in terms of players and, and draft picks makes their, their hands uh, not, not so great uh, when it comes to the off season, um, unfortunately, but I, I, I think I agree with you. They've just got to stand pat. See what PG can do with his roster if they can, you know, with, if, if if they do get Jackson back at a reasonable uh, price, Batum comes back. I still think this team looks pretty good enough to get you into the playoffs. And then you're hoping that Kawhi's sort of hopefully getting back um, for a postseason run. Um, and then even even if not, if they, they make like a fairy tale postseason run and Kawhi's not back, then the next season they're able to really sort of re-gear and go again uh, properly um, with that squad. But, yeah, it, it is going to be an interesting time. And as you said before, Lou, that no one knows what the hell Kawhi's thinking at the best of times. So, um, you know, we're just going to sit here and wait and see what happens. Yeah, I, it's actually something I'm quite keen to unpack with you when when we get through this season, um, being that, you know, that there are a couple of very interesting teams in 
in this division. Uh, your Warriors are one of them. Uh, the, the Clippers are another one, and to a lesser extent, the Lakers and even the Kings surrounded in trade talks. Obviously, the Suns, I think, will have less moves to make unless Chris Paul decides to shock them and, and leave. But uh, there's a lot of interesting off-season stuff to break down, and, and no doubt we'll do a great job of it here um, on the Pacific post-ups. But th- there is a a team I would like to talk to you about that actually has no perceivable flaws whatsoever. Um, I, I don't think you could improve this roster by uh, trading for citizenship for Lonzo Ball, that's for sure. And that is uh, that is the Australian boomers, Nick Boylan. Um, so here's the question. Is, is it too soon to declare us gold medalists? Um, can we start getting custom fitted shirts made up? Like, where are you at with this kind of squad? And also the the American team, of course. Uh, I have been uh, furiously Googling uh, Australian gold medal merch uh, for mm-hmm. Tokyo. Um, haven't have been able to get stuff yet. Um, I think I'd like my imaginary merch more than the jersey that has been mocked up by ASICs and is now available on their store. It looks like a training running singlet. It looks terrible. I really want the Nike stuff that they've been wearing, uh, particularly well worn by uh, our new favorite Australian, Matisse Leibel, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, um, the boomers, um, uh, the only way to say it is that basketball is coming home. Uh, you know, football couldn't come home to England, but basketball's coming home to Australia. That's what ha- that's what's happening. Um, obviously, we're a little bit excited about some warm-up games, as is uh, as is our right. Um, you know, we're now on a two-zero winning streak against Team USA, uh, which is nothing to sniff at. Um, and we're getting gulped. It, it, it's happening. Um, we were worried about Ben Simmons uh, coming. Uh, his lack of presence, um, what, what was going to be the go, but, you know, nothing to worry about because uh, his Philadelphia 76ers teammate, all jokes aside, has been very, very good. And I think Matisse Leibel getting into a Boomers jersey has been the best thing for Australia, but also the best thing for Matisse Leibel because it's getting a chance to really showcase his game, get a more involved offensive role um, where his athleticism, particularly in this Australian team, is like... Uh, it, it, it just shines incredibly bright because he can do things that no one else on that roster can do. And he's made some incredible defensive plays. He's knocked down his threes. He's got down in transition. He's been awesome. And this Boomers team just looks amazing. Obviously, Paddy is kicking goals as he does at all times when he pulls on that uniform and turns into you know, a, a hybrid of Steph Curry, Jason Kidd, and Trey Young all together. Um, wearing uh, being a, a flag bearer, um, potentially the best flag bearer in uh, any Olympics um, in history. Um, so I'm excited to see what this team can do. But yeah, it's uh, it, it is going to be interesting, particularly because you flick things back over for Team US, Team USA, Lou, and things aren't looking too rosy over there. No, um, and uh, just before we jump to Team USA, it, it actually watching title for the Boomers. It makes me wonder whether, like, if you were to get him on an NBA, like the Phoenix, so the Philadelphia 76ers, and uh, we don't pretend to be Sixers experts here, but they're always like right on the edge of not enough shooting, and often they just don't have enough shooting. And whether it's because of a Ben Simmons trade that brings in more shooting in the offseason or, or what it is, it, I just really want to see Tybal now on a roster that has enough shooting because yeah. it, it it's almost like it unlocked him. And in a weird way, even though his game suits, Philly in the sense like it matches their team's personality of like ferocious defense and shaky three-point shooting. It, it just, I mean, he actually fitted last year's fix, the Sixers roster even more in that sense. But it just, it really, it really makes me want to see him on a roster with a little more spacing. Um, whether he's got, he just gives off like a big Mikhail Bridges light kind of vibe. Um, also some sneaky playmaking, which he's shown slight glimpses of throughout his NBA career, but he's, between Embiid and Simmons and whichever token point guard and the Tobias Harris pick and roll they're going to have out there. Like, you're just not going to see it much in Philly, which is a shame. But I, I would like to see uh, see him, you know, on a team with more shooting. And if it's not the Sixers, while the Sixers do do rate him, uh, I do think he'd be a, a gettable asset um, for a team. Um, he'd fit really well on your Warriors. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, particularly with Clay back. I think him being like the two, take some of the defensive capability off, off Clay, that'd be... That'd be awesome. But um, it's just, yeah, it's really nice to see. Um, as far as Team USA is concerned, I think that the biggest concern for them at the moment is just they've got a lot of 1A guys 
Um, it's actually with the Beal and Levine selections didn't make – I mean, they make sense because Brad Beal is Brad Beal and he's now obviously entered health and safety protocols and won't be going to the Olympics. But I almost wonder if they should have gone for more complementary guys than, than those kind of players because it's like, okay, we got you got Kevin Durant out there. Um, you've got 80% of Kevin Durant and Jason Tatum and you've got Damian Lillard. I just don't. I just don't think you need any more like you know alpha kind of guys out there. I think the complementary guys make more sense. Um, but I'm curious to to see what you think and how much you think the addition of Devin Booker is going to change this team. Yeah, I, I don't think you. I don't think the problems that were happening with Team USA at the moment really replaced um, or alleviated. Sorry, by Booker's presence. I think that you get another guy in there who's. I think a good playmaker, but not a great playmaker, an excellent scorer. But the, the two sort of deficit, deficits I'm seeing with this Team USA side at the moment is playmaking and rebounding. They're getting absolutely killed in the paint. They don't have a lot of big guys. And you sort of talk about it and people, people would like slamming the whole Kevin Love selection. America doesn't have right now the greatest selection of big guys. If you like went down the list of the best big men in basketball right now, they're all international. Jokic is from Serbia. Embiid is from Cameroon. Aiton's from representing the Bahamas. Um, Jock Jock Landale as well as representing the Boomers. Um, you know, they're just the ones off, you know, off the top of my noggin. And you still got, you know, like Marcus Sole out there, you know, he's someone who's a veteran, but he's still going to be doing jobs. You know, the guy who would do jobs for Spain. I mean, you got a, you got the Sabonis. Uh, yeah, exactly. I'm drawing the flags on bigs at the moment, but yeah. yeah. It, it, no, it, it's funny. I mean, I've, this exercise I've heard been done on a few podcasts uh, recently. And the US just isn't, I mean, Bam is fantastic. But if you watch the NBA game, if you watch the international game, there are a lot of bruises out there. And Bam always looks small in a, in a sense, but he's perfect for the modern NBA. I mean, particularly if he adds a he adds a three pointer. I love Bam, but he's not your traditional kind of guy that can hold up. And in a sense, um, you know, they probably obviously Jokic won't be at these Olympics. I don't believe Giannis is as well. Forgive me if I'm wrong there. Um, but uh, I think it could have been even worse uh, for Team USA as far as they just don't have. Uh, a ton of big guys that can play an important role. Um, and, you know, I, when you've got to go up against guys like uh, guys like Paddy Mills um, on the offensive end, um, I, I just think uh, you need a big commanding presence so that you are, you've, you're not getting all those cutters inside. I mean, as much as I hate to throw slander at Jason Tatum, Matisse Tybal had a, had, was backdoor cutting him uh, into oblivion down the stretch there. Um and having a big man at the rim would would have helped that situation, perhaps. Um, but I, I just think uh, I just think the US aren't as well rehearsed, um, and they're probably their squad's not as well considered as what it should be. No, the, the construction's all wrong. I think the guy that I probably would have liked to see in this team, you say, uh, squad would have been Miles Turner. Um, he would probably have been the one who potentially would add something a little bit, you know, one of the best shot blockers in the league and can help space the floor enough to, to keep things interesting um, against some bigger lineups that, you, you know, you do face in FIBA. You made a really good point about Adebayo being perfect for the modern NBA, but the reality is FIBA basketball is not the modern NBA. It's almost chalk and cheese at times. And the, the change in rules about how bigs can camp in the paint a little bit more, uh, how, you know, as you said, teams particularly tend to go with some bigger guys, not only at the five, but also at the four. You know, guys that we see you know, in the NBA, it was almost exclusively fives now um, in, in today's game. You know, they're, they're still playing at the four, um, you know, in in uh, international basketball. So, you know, you know, like, like the Boomers, for example, are rolling out Landale and Baines. Jock Landale is not playing a minute of power forward if he gets – sorry, when he gets to the NBA. And that that's sort of how things are looking at the moment. And the USA barely have, you know, sort of a couple of big guys to roll out in a rotation um, in the Olympics, let alone, you know, three or four that they can keep sort of positions while stocked at the four and five. I do think Draymond's going to play a big role, but probably more as a playmaker rather than, you know, he's not going to play too many minutes at the five. That's for sure. But... I think that, yeah, there, there are enough gaps in this USA roster to be a little bit concerned. I think that 
it doesn't have the same sort of construction where the, this is kind of almost like a, a bit of a 2K roster where you've picked it, you've sorted the column by overalls and you've put them in there rather than actually having a look as like, okay, maybe this guy could go out there. Like someone like Joe Harris, I think would have been fantastic on this team because although he got slammed for his performance in the, in the, the postseason for Brooklyn, I, just, I still do think that, again, someone who doesn't eat the ball in their hands who can really hurt teams from outside uh, is kind of what you need a little bit. And just having some guys who are less, who are more comfortable not having the ball in their hands would have been fantastic. It's fantastic. It, it is great having so many closers on your team, but that is also, it is a massive double-edged sword. Like Durant's been great. Levine had a really good game against Argentina. Tatum's thrown flashes and then you've had Beal and uh, Lillard, you know, show, show a little bit. But I still don't, you just, chemistry trumps skill in uh, when it comes to the Olympics, I think. Um, quite often, Team USA's skill uh, does overwhelm that, but I don't think that's going to happen at this Olympics. Well, and, and uh, uh, the interesting thing, I guess you raised with, with Draymond was a good point. I'll, I'll tie it back with Draymond because obviously we're talking Pacific Division, is that he's, a, I think, as a playmaker, his skills are translatable across across any form of basketball. There's no doubt. I, I think what made him such a unique defensive weapon in the NBA, what makes him such a unique defensive weapon in the NBA, doesn't apply as much in FIBA. So, I mean, could you really junk it up and go some out of bio Draymond minutes? I mean, maybe. But then you're almost leaning into the strength of the opposition. Then you're playing their style. Like they're very much stuck here. Um, and you know it's 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 difficult. I mean, uh, Luca has qualified Slovenia, so now they're going to have to deal with him at some point. Um, and uh, they're going to have to go up against a very competitive Australian team. Um, you know, Spain and Argentina will always give you a run for the money. Nigeria, I mean, hell, shout um, out to Nigeria. God damn. Shout out to the Nigerian team national Twitter account. By the way, their social think- media is absolutely killing the game at the moment. I'm I'm a big fan. If, if if whoever runs that, if anyone knows anyone that runs that and they would like to come on the Pacific Post Ups, you're more than welcome anytime. They're fantastic. But um, it, it, I guess one benefit uh, about this uh, about this kind of warm up period and about this Olympics is we've had a chance to have a look uh, at a couple of really talented young Australians here, Nick. And I'm not talking about me and you, um, but we do have a couple of takes on them. Um, I'll let you go first here, mate. Why don't you fire away with your scorching lukewarm or chilly for the week? Yes, we've, we've uh, strayed away from the finals because um, we felt like we've uh, spent a good time talking about that. And there's only so many ways you can analyze a series without uh, straying into ridiculous hot take territory. So I do think that particularly based on a scorching performance against uh, the aforementioned uh, D-Tigers of Nigeria, I think Chris Goulding will be on an NBA roster next season. Whew. Um. Okay, so, <laughs> so so taking off my Australian hat jersey, um, removing all of the Australian blood from my system, um, it, this is pretty scorching. Tell me why a 32-year-old Chris Goulding is going to make the NBA next year, Nick. I mean, take away the fact that he's still on a uh, – I think he's got two years left on his contract in the NBL. Let's throw that out the window because – this is a, a series, uh, this is a segment where quite often realism goes straight out the window. But mm-hmm. for those who don't know, Chris Goulding uh, is one of my favorite basketball players I've ever seen play, um, particularly be- or add in the fact that he's uh, one of the number one ticket holders of my football team. So he's obviously a man who's got great taste in a lot of things. Um, but Chris Goulding had one of the better like limited runs we've seen uh, in international basketball going a perfect seven of seven from deep against Nigeria in that last warm-up game. And it will be the last warm-up game for Australia, given the uh, cancellation of their, of their final game against the USA, thanks to Bradley Buell and now Jeremy Grant as well. Um, Chris Gordon's seven threes did not look like touching the rim at any stage of that game. These were spot up threes. Uh, these were threes, coming off some very good pin downs and some flare screens where this is a guy who doesn't need a lot of room to shoot. Now for our listeners who have no idea who the hell I'm talking about, let's paint a little bit of a picture. He's a guy who's, as you, as you mentioned, uh, Lou is into his thirties now. Um, he is the holder of the first 50 point game in the NBL era. 
He's a three-time NBL champion, an NBL grand final MVP as recently as 2018, a three-time all-NBL player and a one-time scoring champ, and a career 37% shooter from deep. And that last stat is why he should be on an NBL. Sorry, definitely on an NBL team. He'll be on an NBA team. Because it doesn't matter, regardless of your background, shooting is a desirable skill in today's NBA. And particularly if we're relating things back to our Pacific division, Chris Gordon on the Lakers. Just, I'm just, just putting that image in, in your head a little bit there. Mm-hmm. Someone, a, a real weapon for LeBron to work with. Someone who's not going to cost a lot of money. Someone who's got a fair amount of local basketball experience playing across a lot of teams. He's a guy who's already been to Commonwealth Games, World uh, FIBA World Cups, and the Olympics already. He's a guy I, I genuinely think is like a swan song. You might only play like literally two years in the NBA. I don't care. He deserves to be on an NBA NBA roster because he is one of a true assassin uh, when it comes to scoring the basketball. And I do think uh, CG43 needs to be uh, on a roster next season. Um, so I think there would be a place for him in the NBA. It, it would be spot minutes. Um, look, I was a little... Uh, disappointed a few years ago um, when uh, Mitch Creek couldn't find a, a spot. Yeah. In the NBA. yeah, he got very close a couple of times, but who actually was in the NBA briefly, but couldn't stick. Um, so I, I think for our listeners as well uh, in America, that you know, Nick brought up career thirty-seven percent three-point shooter. If you want to know how legitimate that is, last two years in the NBL, nine point three attempts a game and eight point nine attempts a game. This is not a, like a standstill and yeah. just you know make wide open threes kind of guy. When he plays in the NBL, he is getting attention. So this is a guy where if you brought him over to the NBA, if you gave him consistent minutes, he probably would shoot 40-something percent because he wouldn't be guarded anywhere near the way they guard him um, in the NBL, certainly not playing alongside someone like LeBron. Um, my, my, I guess my follow-up question to you, Nick, is how do you think he'd hold up defensively? That's often the, the jump that a lot of guys struggle with coming over from different international leagues, do you think he'd be okay? As you said, he's going to play spot minutes. He's not a guy who's going to be averaging 20-odd minutes uh, per game. I do think that yeah, Chris has never been the best defender uh, in the NBL. I think that he's actually he's actually played okay on defense, I think, in the warmer games we've seen. He seems to sort of you know step it up a gear, I think, in, at, at that level. But this is a guy who's had a couple of summer league appearances uh, with the Cavs and the Mavs. And I do think that the minutes that you're going to give him, he, what he's offering defensively is more than compensated by what he brings at the other end. There are plenty of worse defenders out there um, in the NBA who have similar scoring attributes who still get a run. I, I think that what, what Goulding brings to the table is more than enough to give him a shot on an NBA roster and you know, give him some minutes at the end of the game and really see that, okay, this is a guy who can, you know, offer a couple of things um, from deep, and I, I genuinely think he could help out on the championship contender. Mm-hmm. Um, it, look, it, I'd certainly like to see it. I think he'd look almost as good in purple and gold as he does in green and gold. Um, and I think he would be a he would certainly be appreciated in the NBA if he got enough minutes. So I'd be a little worried about him going to the Lakers and kind of being a bit like the Troy Daniels kind of role that um, mm. we saw a couple of years back, but. You know, hey, for a guy like Chris Golding, you know, a year of doing that would would definitely be, you know, an amazing experience. Um, and if he if he wanted to go back, he could come back to Australia anytime and be the hero in the NBL. So, um, I'd love to see it. Uh, there are plenty of teams in this very Pacific division that could do with a guy like him. Um, really, any of the contenders. I mean, it probably would make sense on the Kings, but any of the other any of the other four teams, I think he could he could find a home. Um, and I'd love to see it. It could be potentially a second Australian uh, joining the Warriors this season, uh, leading into your take, Luke. Yeah, look, I, I posed this question on, on Twitter, um, and I can't claim credit for the concept entirely because Tony Jones, um, who does uh, who does some good work around the place, um, he uh, he posed a question on on the the Dun- uh, the Nikias Duncan, um, what is it, the Dunker Spot podcast? That's it. Uh, uh, saying that uh, they were doing a, a little uh, a little mock draft, um, and uh, I, I think they were talking uh, about what the Warriors do at seven. And he had the Warriors taking Josh Giddy, 
And ever since that idea has kind of percolated with me, I, I, I've thought about it over and over again. And, and quite frankly, I'm at the point now um, where I think uh, it would be a mistake by the Warriors if Josh Giddy's on the board at seven and they don't take him. What do you think, Nick? You're a Warriors fan. You're an Australian. Puts in a tough spot. Where are you? I think that particularly the, the the whole Giddy to Warriors situation is something that a lot of Dubs fans can talk themselves into. The whole thinking it's a mistake. I think that is very much a scorching take, Lou. Uh, why would it be a mistake for the Golden State Warriors not to draft Josh Giddy? So, look, a few months ago, it would have been believable the Warriors could have easily snapped him up at 14, I reckon. Um, there is a ton of buzz around him now. We saw tonight that he's been invited to the green room um, of the draft. I think he's played well enough for Australia in a few spot minutes here. Made a few threes, which is huge for him. Um, I just think he's probably not there at 14. Um, yeah, and like, and like I said, two months ago, you would have thought he'd be there at 14 if the Warriors wanted. Um, last year, the Golden State Warriors turned down an opportunity to take a tall, exceptional playmaker coming out of the NBL, a guy that would have fit really well alongside Stephen Curry and Clay Thompson when he returns. And this is no shade on James Wiseman. There's still some potential there. But I, I think... Deep down, if you if you gave the front front office of the Warriors some truth serum, they would love to have Lamelo Ball on their roster right now. And I'm not saying Josh Giddy is Lamelo Ball, but I'm saying that this kind of player consistently succeeds in the NBA. There's defensive versatility. There's some playmaking. Steph loves being able to get off the ball for a couple of minutes. Someone like Jordan Paul would be more than okay to get off the get off the ball for some bench minutes here. And get some get some deep catch and shoot threes with Josh Giddy setting him up. I think you do wonders for a guy like James Wiseman rolling to the rim. And I think if you talk, if once he had a bit of time to catch up to the defensive intensity of the NBA, I think his size would certainly give the Warriors an advantage that they wouldn't get if they went for let's say a Davion Mitchell. So look, it might be my bias, but I just think the Warriors would make a mistake to to turn down another player of this type two years in a row if he's on the board at seven. Uh, it is a tricky one because I'm, yeah, I'm I'm massive on Giddy and I'm massive on that whole pairing of him on the court with Steph or in the second unit playing with Jordan Poole. I think the fit's there for sure. And I do like the idea of having a, a, a playmaker who's six foot seven. I think that's the way the NBA is going at the moment. As you said, he's not LaMelo Ball. He's a kind of, he's a different sort of player, but he still does offer some very exceptional playmaking, a, a growing three-point shot where he saw a couple go down against Nigeria um, in very much sort of like a, a bit of a, a last-minute audition, I think, for for NBA um, execs. And I, I do think that performance is what is exactly pushing him up the draft order at the moment, seeing him play against, you know, again, playing against grown men. He's done that in the NBL, but I think on a, you know, a larger stage, yes, it is an Olympic warm-up game, but playing against some quite a number of uh, NBA uh, players who are, you know, already on rosters and very much in rotations. So, you know, he had 14 points, four boards and three assists against the D Tigers. And I do think that I really like the foot fit of him on the Warriors. I'm just... I'm just, I'm just not sure if he, they're going to get him at seven. I'm just not sure if they, they pick him at seven. And I do agree that he won't be available at 14. That's not, that's just not happening. As a, as a Dubs fan, I'm not sure if they're prioritizing. I think it's almost like they're looking at two different players with their two different picks, assuming that they do have their two picks. They're getting someone who's going to play right away and contribute. And mm-hmm. I think that they're going to get a player who is going to help them down the line for potentially that post Steph era in that transition. I think Giddy's more, I think Giddy's sort of between those two uh, like options, but I do think he's more of a, a prospect rather than someone who's going to come in right away. Like LaMelo did. I think that Josh has still got some growing to do as, as an, an athlete. He's, um, but yeah, I don't whether you know the dubs want to go in the direction of someone like they're picking a, a Moses Moody, for example, someone who's really started to to circulate a, a name who started to circulate a little bit when it comes to the names that Golden State are looking at, and I watched his uh, interview um, after his um, draft workout today and was really impressed by um, his character. Um, 
and also been impressed by what he can do um, on the floor. So I'm not 100% sure if they go him. Uh, if they go with him at seven, do I think it's a mistake? Potentially. It's not probably the the, the level of mistake that they make that by not drafting LaMelo Ball um, as much as it pains me to say. Uh, again, not giving up on James Wiseman yet. Um, but yeah, it, it, it it's not looking great at the moment. Um, but yeah. I'm just not a hundred percent sure if I can talk myself into being really crash hot on them getting giddy at seven. If there's not a good player available at 14, if James Booknight slips to 14, if, if Moses Moody is there at 14, I think it's a really fantastic draft for the Warriors, but if they're not able to get that ready to contribute level uh, rookie at 14, then it's uh, maybe looking a little bit more dicey. I guess I'll, I'll then I'll finish the, uh, I'll finish the pod on a, on a, on a question then for you. If if Davion Mitchell and Josh Giddy are both on the board at seven, oh. um, who would you who would you prefer the the Warriors take? Because because I would be I would struggle with that one. If I'm only picking between those two players, yeah, I'm probably going Giddy to be honest. I've almost talked myself out of Davion Mitchell of late. I don't like the uh, as much as what he can bring on the defensive end. You can score. I I don't like I. When you, you're asking me, hey, Nick, do you want a six-foot playmaker off the bench or a six-foot-seven playmaker off the bench? Who would you rather put next to Steph Curry? I'm taking the six-foot-seven guy. Yeah, and I think that's kind of where I'm at with this take on Giddy. Um, and look, you out, you outlined um, some really good points there about some contemplations the Warriors would have to have about taking him if that's the guy on the board at seven. Um, in a weird way, I think he'd make more sense for the Warriors and perhaps, and I, look, I don't think Kaminga's going to be there at seven, although he is sounding like he's going to slip. I think the Warriors do have to be careful about not going too raw with their pick here at seven. Um, and I think if they're betting on upside, they've kind of got to hope that, that Wiseman develops. Um, but also, I mean, I, I, you don't want them just to go Davion Mitchell purely because he's, you know, spent four years in college. So uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see what they do. Um, and certainly one to keep an eye on. It's something that I think by this time next week, we will be really starting to drill into things like what the Warriors will do at 7 and 14. Um, but for uh, for now, uh, that's a wrap for today, Nick. Um, it's going to, I think by the time we meet next time, we should have a finals result if I'm not wrong. When's game seven exactly? Yes, we will. Uh, game seven would be Tuesday. Yep. It's, yeah. Uh, there you go. So, um, sorry for this is I have a, a pet that's getting restless, but um, it's uh, we're going to know it one way or another uh, what the situation is by Tuesday. So, Nick, I'm looking forward to reconvening them, mate. Um, and and uh, until then, I'm going to put on my Phoenix hat and say, go Suns. <laughs>